There's old Richard Croker the boss. I reckon I know a good horse. If you had a but backed RB at Epson, you wouldn't have been at a loss. That's what he said. <laughs> said old Richard Croker the boss. Yes, indeed, that's what he was, the boss. Calling him just Richard Croker is a way of putting him down. To all who knew him, to all who have even heard of him, he was Boss Croker, a nickname that he raised to the status of a title. And who was he, the Boss Croker? To some, he was the breeder and owner of Orbe, the 1907 Derby winner, one of the very few people who declined the winning owner's perk of being presented after the race to the British monarch. To others, he was the County Cork-born gangster who ruled New York from Tammany Hall and made millions. To some elderly people in Sandyford, County Dublin, he was the man who built the local big house, Glencairn, now the official residence of the British ambassador, and they remember him as a nice old gentleman who paid the best wages in the district and who had two funerals. Boss Croker's first funeral was to the miniature mausoleum he had built for himself a short distance away from his mansion at Glencairn, only a couple of hundred yards or so, beside an artificial pond. Croker had sons and daughters, but the mausoleum was only made for two, himself and his second wife, Beulah, who was remembered by the Sandiford people as a very distinguished-looking Indian princess, years younger than he. Boss Croker had it all planned out. After his death, Glencairn was to be Beulah's for life, then it was to go to the Sisters of Charity, for, as Boss Croker remarked to many visitors to his home... I think Glen Cairn and the 600 acres of land around about it would make a very nice home for the Sisters of Charity, don't you? A very nice home indeed. And Boss Crooker presumed, I think rightly, that the good sisters would look after it well, and perhaps in the evening time when they'd be strolling down by the artificial lake, they might throw a radiantly grateful glance towards the mausoleum and murmur... <gasps> there! Awaiting the sound of Archangel Gabriel's trumpet on the last day lies our benefactor, Mr. Croker. And his lady wife, Mrs. Beulah Croker. The Indian princess. Who adored him. Ah, in death they were not divided. But the Indian princess did not leave Glencairn to the Sisters of Charity, for between one thing and another the fortune which Boss Croker had left her had leaked away, and she had to mortgage Glencairn and finally give it up altogether. But, as any estate agent will tell you, having the embalmed corpse of the previous owner reposing a short distance from the front door is hardly an amenity to an otherwise desirable residence. So, a few of the local Sandyford people were called in. It was our slabs he was in. And they just took him over and shagged him off the hell up the road. A man by the name of Mr Carr, who was uh, the manager of Young Dick Kroger, he... Uh, brought him up and uh, he supervised it. My brother-in-law chiselled him out. They chiselled out the limestone slab. My father did the grave. So Boss Croker's dream of awaiting Gabriel's trumpet beside the mansion he had created and loved ended after 17 years. But certain other graves at Glencairn remained undisturbed. The graves of Orby, the Derby winner, and his dam. But all this is the end of the story. Let's start at the beginning in County Cork. Boss Croker was born in different places at different times. Towards the end of his reign as political boss of New York in 1901, 
He had a book published about himself with a title that you might think is oddly ambiguous. Pearls Before Swine, it's called. The book, very genteelly turned out, the boss was paying for it, was a whitewashing job. Nowadays we'd say public relations. Anyway, the book said the boss was born in Castletown Roach near Fermoy, County Cork, in 1843. But when the boss came back to live in Ireland and had to supply information for Irish reference books, he told no fibs about his date or place of birth. The truth is, 1841 in Clonakilty. Now you may well wonder, what's the difference between Clonakilty and Castletown Roach that makes one a more desirable birthplace than the other? Of course, there's no difference. But in claiming Castletown Roach while he was in America, the boss was emphasising the fact that he was, on his mother's side, one of the wellsteads of Ballywalter, Castletown Roach. The boss's full name, by the way, was... Richard Wellstead Croker. On his father's side, he was one of the Crokers of Ballynagard, County Limerick. Both the Wellsteads and the Crokers were landed gentry, so there's no doubt the boss Croker came of what's called good family. Now, as far as property went, the Crokers were three times as good as the Wellsteads. If you look up the Parliamentary Return of Owners of Land in Ireland, published in 1873, and turn to Wellstead, you find... Wellstead, Ballywalter, Castletown Roach, 1,083 acres... Turn up Croker? Croker, Ballynagard, County Limerick, 3,328 acres... So why then emphasise the Wellstead connection when the Crokers were so much better off? There are two reasons. First, his mother, Frances Laura Wellstead, was the daughter of the squire of Castletown Roach. But his father, Er Coote Croker, was merely the fifth son of the fifth son of the squire of Ballynagard. Now, obviously, in any family tree, the fifth son of the fifth son of a gentleman hasn't as much blue blood as the daughter of a gentleman. Which brings me to the second reason. Boss Croker's mother, like all other women in her situation, would have constantly reminded her children of their distinguished Wellstead grandfather, the squire of 1,083 acres, two roods and five birches at Castletown Roach. She wouldn't have laid quite so much stress on the far-distant Crokers, although one can hear her voice. Of course, your dear father is very well connected. I will not deny that. But then, their dear father wasn't, in the eyes of the world, a true gentleman. He wasn't a man of property. He was reduced to the sordid necessity of earning his bread by the sweat of his brow. Boss Croker called him... A veterinarian. In Clonakilty, they were more direct. A horse doctor. And when Boss Croker returned to Ireland in 1905, he dropped his Castletown Roach birthplace and rendered unto Clonakilty the things that were Clonakilty's. He made himself out to be a year younger than he actually was. A pardonable vanity, his mistress was 27 years younger than he was, and, besides, he really didn't look his age. But when he became an old man, that bit of vanity was dropped, and he admitted quite readily that he had come into this world on the 24th of November, 1841. He can't have remembered very much about his Irish childhood because when the Great Famine struck, the horse doctor took his wife and his family to America. The New York of the 1840s was the city of opportunity in the land of opportunity. The horse doctor couldn't have had very much money when he arrived, and indeed for some time the Crooker family lived in a shanty on a tract of wasteland that is now part of Central Park. 
All the neighbours were Irish. Indeed, it was an Irish colony. Presently, the horse doctor got a job at the stables of a horse tram company and the family moved to 28th Street. But Croker was to maintain that he never lived in the slums. I grew up in New York in modest circumstances, but never in the slums. Education? A one-room school on the side of Madison Square Garden. The teacher couldn't afford a blackboard and chalk. He traced the letters of the alphabet with a pointed stick in a box of white sand. Now, it's been the fashion to dismiss Boss Croker as an illiterate hoodlum. But if you read the verbatim reports of the court cases which bedeviled his later life, you can see that he was able to express himself more clearly and more stylishly than many a university man. His letters certainly aren't those of an illiterate in any sense of the term, and his handwriting is bold, clear, confident. But the fact remains he was brought up as an urchin of the streets. He learned to fight his corner and was able to fight it very effectively because he had the build of a bull. And in this respect, age did not wither him, as the people in Sandyford who remember him in his Glen Cairn days nearly 60 years ago can testify. We were well blocked, man. A pair of arms like a bloody kicking horse. We were the dog of a man to finish. Just the same hit you look at you. Did he ever hit you? No, no. Shades of two small. I went to book, but anyway, I found it very nice. I told Steve Edge there for nine years. Captain the turf ball for a race course from Charmel Bridge. <coughs> and there was a ten-ton wagon. Well, it was a bit bigger than me, but it was fairly well built. A broad man. And it tried to be sandy at that time, of course. To get. But uh, it was a rough type, like, to look at in appearance. He was a bit tough-looking. Yeah, he had uh, the American accent. Different American wars, right, the Jews, like, you know. But no matter... If you were 70 years of age, you always called you boy. Calling everybody boy was, I suppose, an echo of the Tammany Hall days where he was boss. But in spite of that graphic description of him as a well-blocked man with a pair of arms like a kicking horse, the truth is he wasn't a giant. He was rather on the small side. My height is five foot seven inches. And in youth he wasn't very heavy. Ten stone though later he filled out... Thirteen and a half stone. And as I look at a photograph of him, I can see how accurate was the description of his hands. A bloody great big pair of ham fists. He had the head of a bull, all right, and a massive jaw. And cold green eyes. But the coldness would have depended on whom he was looking at. Why, even you and I can look coldly, icily, at certain people. His second wife, Beulah, wouldn't have called him cold. To Beulah Croker, he was... My darling daddy. He, for his part, was very protective. A man who says one word against Beulah, I'll never forgive him. And I'll never forget. And he didn't, as his son Richard Jr. was to find out. Likewise, his daughter Ethel. As for his younger son... Howard? (laughs) Richard's messenger boy. Yet, when they were growing up, Few children could have had a fonder father and a prouder one than Boss Croker. And God knows Boss Croker was a marvellous breadwinner. He put his eldest son, Richard, in the way of making... Five million dollars. And when he was, in a manner of speaking, paying his first wife off, his parting gifts to her were... A mansion in New York costing $200,000. And $600,000 in cash. And a trust fund... 
I set up a trust fund for her and the children, and I made my son Richard trustee. The damnedest, foolishest thing I ever did. It's very difficult to find out exactly how much Boss Croker made over to the Indian princess, for Boss Croker's right hand didn't know what his left one was doing where money was concerned, and he did his bookkeeping at the back of his head. But the allegation is that, apart from Glen Kern and its 600 acres and a string of racehorses, Beulah Croker got... Five million dollars. And at this point, a good question would be, how and where did Boss Croker get all those millions of dollars? The answer depends upon whom you put the question to. Ask Boss Croker himself. I was partner in a New York uh, auctioneering firm. We had a near monopoly of real estate sales conducted under court order. This gave him an income of $25,000 a year. Good money. But not enough to make you a millionaire no matter how hard you save. I was also partner in a bonding company which bonded all the employees of the New York City Council. And so on. But you'd hardly expect Boss Croker to admit where the real loot came from. It came from his position as boss of Tammany Hall. In other words, he was the godfather of those days. Now, the name of Tammany Hall is quite familiar, but what exactly was it? Tammany Hall was originally a benevolent society and was named after Tamirand, an Indian chief. During the 19th century, it developed more and more into a political organisation, got tied up with the Democratic Party and finally became the organisation that ran New York's politics and New York's municipal affairs. It did this by dragooning the votes of its thousands of members who were chiefly Irish and German immigrants. It still hung on to certain of the original Indian terms. It referred to itself as the Wigwam and its leader was the chief, otherwise the boss. There was a succession of bosses. The notorious boss Tweed, who raised jobbery and corruption to a fine art, Every municipal employee had either to pay Boss Tweed a backhander to get his job in the first place, or else slip him a percentage of the salary every payday. Boss Tweed was succeeded by Boss Kelly, Honest John as he was called, a brother-in-law of Cardinal McCluskey. When the New York electoral worm turned in 1871 and a stern investigation of Tammany Hall was carried out, Honest John suddenly decided to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. He didn't come back until the investigation was over. Boss Kelly's right-hand man, his hatchet man, was Richard Croker. And how did Richard Croker get that far? Well, he'd started as a machinist in the engineering works of the New York Central Railroad and soon became leader of what was known as the Fourth Avenue Tunnel Gang. One of the minor Tammany leaders, a man called O'Brien, used him as a beater-upper of troublesome people. But when the struggle began as to who should succeed Boss Tweed, Croker deserted O'Brien, who was one of the candidates, and went over to Kelly. Kelly won the contest, and Croker, now aged 27, got his first share of the spoils by being elected an alderman. The way to hire things seemed clear, then he had a fall. 1874, an election for Congress. O'Brien, beaten in the fight for Tammany, is now a candidate for Congress. Croker is present at the polling booths, making sure that the Tammany members vote early and often. But not for O'Brien. The two men, O'Brien and Croker, come face to face. Get out of here! Shut your mouth, O'Brien! One of O'Brien's men is shot and mortally wounded. Before he dies, he whispers a few words to those around him. It was... Croker did it. 
Croker was arrested and jailed in the notorious New York prison, The Tombs. It was a month before he stood trial, and during that month he must have had his friends outside working to make sure nothing would go wrong with the trial when it did come on. Meanwhile, he was learning two valuable habits in the tombs. First, to keep his Irish temper under strict control. Second, to keep his Irish tongue under even stricter control. Jail makes man silent. When Croker finally did come to trial, the witnesses contradicted each other so much that the jury divided 6-6, and Croker went free. He always maintained that it wasn't he who fired the shot, but one of his pals, that he never even carried a gun himself, but that the law of loyalty to the gang prevented him from accusing the real killer. Loyalty is everything. Gratitude is the finest word I know. But the trial seemed to have ruined Croker. He was no longer an alderman and lost his post as city coroner. And he seemed to be without a cent in the world. Boss Kelly gave him odd jobs that kept body and soul together. It took Croker nine years to get back on the bandwagon, but at the end of that time he managed to get himself re-elected alderman. Next, he got a job as one of New York's fire commissioners. Three years later, in 1886, he took over the leadership of Tammany Hall from Boss Kelly, who was dying. Of natural causes, let it be said. So, at 45 years of age, Richard Wellstead Croker became Boss Croker, and, in the words of a later tycoon, virtually got a licence to print his own money. Tammany collected protection money from gamblers, saloon keepers and brothel owners. An even richer source of income was police corruption, and as the New York City annual budget was of the order of $150 million, with every municipal employee paying tribute to Tammany, even the lowest-ranking Tammany leader must have been a very rich man. A lot of the money stuck to Croker's fingers, although he always maintained that he had made his fortune solely from what he called... Honest graft. What Croker meant by honest graft was that he used his inside information about which parts of New York were going to be developed to buy up property cheaply there. Then, at the right time, he sold at an enormous profit. Immoral, but not illegal. As well as this, New York businessmen found it prudent to keep on Boss Croker's right side by making him friendly presents of stocks and shares. No one can say for sure how much Croker made out of Tammany, but expert Croker watchers usually put the figure at... Eight million dollars. And in the 1890s, that was an awful lot of money. He himself claimed, later on, that if his children hadn't robbed him, as he said, he would have been worth... Fifteen million dollars. He had his own Pullman car on the railways. He wore a huge diamond tie And such suits. And took up horse racing. How his father, the horse doctor, would have liked that. But alas, the horse doctor had died four years before his son became the big Tammany boss. Boss Croker spent $250,000 on his stud farm. Which reminds one that he also bred sons and daughters. In 1873, the year before he was charged with murder, Croker had married a New York girl, Elizabeth Frazier. She was a very good Catholic. I was born and bred a Protestant. 
All the Krogers and Wellsteads were Protestants. But Miss Frazier wouldn't marry him unless he became a Catholic. Well, I guess I turned Catholic. And that certainly didn't do him any harm with the New York Irish, who at that time formed a majority of the inhabitants of the city's million-plus population. Mr. and Mrs. Croker had four sons and two daughters. But it would be naive to assume on that account that Bessie Croker was the only woman in her husband's life. After 20 years of marriage, they separated. There was no divorce. Mrs. Croker's religion forbade that. There wasn't even an official separation. They just agreed to see no more of each other. The Croker children swore that they never knew what caused their parents to separate. They literally swore that in court. But a possible explanation is to be found on a tombstone in a little County Dublin graveyard, Kilgobbin, just down the road from Boss Croker's Irish home, Glencairn. The inscription reads, In loving memory of Stella Bowman of Glencairn, born March the 24th, 1868, died January the 24th, 1914. To the staff at Glencairn, Miss Bowman was Boss Croker's housekeeper. But one or two of the local people believed that the relationship between them was of a more personal and intimate nature. Certainly, few employers can have raised a handsomer monument to a mere housekeeper than Boss Croker raised at Kilgobbin to Stella Bowman. Moreover, she was buried in what the boss intended to be the Croker family grave. However, more of that anon. We now return to the New York of the 1890s. In 1894, the political situation in New York changed. Reform candidates were voted into office and official investigations loomed up before Tammany Hall. So Boss Croker decided, as his predecessor Boss Kelly had done, that a pilgrimage to the Holy Land would be a wise move. Only in his case, the Holy Land was England and the pilgrimage was planned as a lengthy one. Boss Croker bought a stately home for himself in Berkshire. It was called Moat House near the little market town of Wantage. It was in what is called the Vale of the White Horse. Boss Croker was now Richard Wellstead Croker, Esquire, gentleman of independent means and racehorse owner. He had reasserted in his own person the genteel status not only of the Crokers of Ballinagard, but the Wellsteads of Castletown Roach. But alas, the county families of Berkshire just didn't want to know Richard Wellstead Croker, Esquire. Little more than an American gangster, my dear. My husband says he was actually tried for murder, but bribed the jury. And in spite of the racehorses and the millions of dollars, he was frozen out of Newmarket. They refused him a license to train his horses there. There was definitely no future in England for Richard Wellstead Croker, gentleman. 1897. Election for mayor of the newly created greater city of New York. Once more the situation had changed in New York. Boss Crooker returned there that September and resumed control of Tammany Hall. But things were never to be quite the same for him again. Too many of his Tammany henchmen were disaffected. Then, in 1900, a public committee of investigation uncovered the great Ice Trust scandal. A businessman had organised a merger of the various ice companies in the New York area and secured a monopoly that could fix the price of ice. A necessity for the American domestic ice box. And make the public pay through the nose for it. Tammany forced the city officials to give the new ice trust the exclusive privilege of unloading ice on the municipal docks. The ice trust had made the usual presents of shares to the usual people. The mayor of New York. The four dock commissioners. And Boss Croker. But this time Tammany had gone too far. 
the New York public made it clear that the next election would see a big change. Boss Croker made a rather half-hearted attempt to get himself whitewashed in that book, Pearls Before Swine, but his reign as dictator of New York had come to an end. Once more he retired gracefully to England, and once more the Berkshire County families held aloof. I can assure you, my dear... An American gangster, that's what he is. And my husband says he was tried for murdering a man, but they packed the jury. 1905, Ireland. For sale, Glencairn, gentleman's residence with 51 acres, presently situated at Sandyford, County Dublin. Glorious views. Formerly the country residence of his honour, Mr Justice James Murphy, of the High Court. It was a rather ordinary four-square country villa, not particularly big, which had been built in the 1860s by a Dublin solicitor named George Gresson. In 1905, Boss Croker bought it and bought up over 500 more acres around it. His experienced eye saw that the land would make an excellent stud farm. Moreover, just down the road was Leopardstown Racecourse, which had been opened in 1888. The house that Croker built is completely built with stone from Macro. First he said it was either the Gresham now or the Shelburne. He stayed in at first. Then he moved to Glenburden on the Ballyogan Road. And he lived there until Glencairn was ready. Has Glencairn changed very much since uh, Boss Croker built it? Boss Croker bought He took in six acres of the pleasure ground, made pleasure ground out of his custom. I guess it's what it cost him, £6,000 or something at the time. And it cost him £75,000 to build a house. So there we have Boss Croker installed in his £75,000 mansion. Now one wonders how did Irish society take to him. One can say that if English high society had rejected him and had refused him a licence to train at Newmarket, Ireland and Irish society welcomed him with open arms. Don't you find his American twang simply delightful? Bloody Corkman, that's what he is. So gentlemanly. Goes to Mass every Sunday. Well, they can tell whatever stories they like about him, but I simply refuse to believe them. I suppose you've heard of Miss Bowman. Mrs Bowman? She's a widow and you shouldn't give scandal. Mrs Bowman is merely his housekeeper. Well, she's going to have her hands full running that big house now. I hear Croker has spent £75,000 on rebuilding and enlarging Glencairn. It's all Americanized. Big tile bathrooms and lavatories like you'd see in St Pancras Railway Station in London. He's had a whole new facing of cut granite put on it. And a veranda all around it, covered in too. And inside in one corner of the new Glencairn, if you look hard enough, you'll find poor Judge Murphy's old Glencairn. <laughs> I believe that every door in the place is of solid mahogany. No opportunity for vulgar display has been missed. He has made a lake in the grounds. Well, I hear it's going to be a very warm house, if nothing else, because it's being heated from top to bottom in the American style, with steam pipes coming from a, a huge boiler. But apart from the steam pipes, the big features of Glencairn were the stables, regular palaces for the horses, and the miniature racecourse. And it was at Glencairn that Boss Croker bred Orby. Well, Orby was trained by Dr. McCabe. And Dr. McCabe then, when Mr. Croker had a fallen out, and Dr. McCabe went to England and he trained the 1908 Derby winner as well, a mare called Signoretta. Uh, Mr. Kroger bred Arby himself. 
and Arby was by Rhoda Bay. And the dam of Rhoda Bay was from mayor that he brought from America called Rhodey Dandrum. Now the trainer of Orby had land uh, which he sold to Boss Croker, is yes, that right? Mr. Mr. Croker bought uh, what they call Park Cottage, the land. That would be the Gallops now. That was the farm belonged to uh, Park Cottage. And he bought the land up of Dr. McHale. When the bus came from America, he looked for a training license in England. And he was refused a training license in England. So he said he'd go to Ireland and he'd train the winner of the derby. He'd go back and win the derby, which he did. But when they sent for him to become good there, to go up and see the king, the words he said was, tell the king if he wants to see me to come to Ireland. And that's the whole story, but it was Croker refused to see the king. After his great win, Orbe was, as horses usually are, retired to stud. But very curiously, his life was not a long one. Well, I happened to be in the stable yard and the stud groom was coming up to feed him at the mid midday, like, and uh, the horse was always expected. The top part of his door was open, and he gave a wheelie when he had a... He was so used to the man who looked after him. And with that, he fell again the door and dropped dead. Just, just dropped down inside the door after... When, when he had a man coming, he just wheelied and just dropped down and be standing. So uh, the vessel was cut down for him then, and he's... The, the example of the morning was his heart. The, the operation on there took his heart. It was, so he was buried there, about 50 or 60 yards from where he died. And uh, that's down here now, the stud part of it. And it was, it was there about a year when old Mr. Croker transferred the remains up to Dale Kern. And uh, he, he, he had already had. Uh, another bird there, Rhoda B. She was up there and he buried Arby in the same grave as they had put a small little rack and stone over him. But a lot of people, he got his own Muslim built there then, you see. But a lot of people started to say that he was buried beside the horse. Well, he was two or two hundred yards away from where the horse was. However, that's getting a little ahead of ourselves in the Croker story. To come back to Arby's great win. Naturally, it affected an enormous change in the boss's social status. 1908, the year after Orby won the Derby, the Corporation of Dublin, after some heated discussion, voted by 27 to 13 that... In view of the unique and distinguished position acquired by Mr Richard Croker as an Irishman in America and of his intention to spend the remainder of his days in his native land and to support the Irish Parliamentary Party in the struggle for home rule, he be, and is hereby constituted, an honorary freeman of the city of Dublin. The year 1914 brought the Great War that changed the world. It was a year that also changed Boss Croker's life. For in January 1914, his friend and companion at Glen Kern, Stella Bowman, died of cancer in St Vincent's private nursing home in Lower Leeson Street, Dublin. The death certificate was discreet about Mrs Bowman's status at Glen Kern. Name? Uh, Stella Bowman. Address? Glen Kern, Sandyford, County Dublin. Age? 47. Married or single? 
Widow. Occupation? No occupation. Date of death? 24th of January, 1914. In September 1914, Boss Krukra's wife Bessie died while she was on holiday in Austria. Her body was brought back to New York and she was buried there on the 6th of October. Boss Krukra went to the funeral and seven weeks later married Beulah Edmondson, the girl known as the Indian Princess. I was 30 years of age. He was 73. And I wasn't an Indian princess and never said I was. I was by blood one-eighth a Cherokee Indian, and because of that I received a pension of £160 a year from the American government. The American government was acting as trustee for the Cherokees, living at the time of the admission of Oklahoma into the United States. None of the Crooker children attended Beulah's wedding to their father. But they were polite to me whenever we met, when my husband and I were on vacation back home in America. However, trouble started when my husband asked me to look after his business, and I found that his son, Richard Jr., who had been looking after my husband's affairs in New York, had swindled him. Well, that was what Beulah said. Richard Jr. said the opposite. And so began a long series of law cases, first in America, then in Ireland, that ended in a nominal victory for Beulah, but in fact helped to eat up the fortune that Boss Croker had left her. However, apart from that, the eight years that she and the boss had of married life were to all appearances very happy ones for both of them. My husband was a saint, the only saint I have ever known. Boss Croker and Beulah had an American home at Palm Beach, they called it the Wigwam. But it was in Glencairn in Ireland that they spent most of their time. Oh, I remember Boss Croker well and Mrs Croker as a child. And when Boss Croker died, we went up to see the, fu- the remains in Glencairn. And Mrs Croker was there. She was a stately lady, but she was very Indian-looking. She was very nice and friendly in that. He was laid out there in the, one of the, uh, the landing opposite the church. There's a church in the house. And uh, then we saw the funeral afterwards in, at the pictures. All the men and that, that we knew so well. My husband was working in Glencairn earlier on. I was only a child that time. I didn't know him. But when he came back to Glencairn again, Mr Garrett was in charge. And uh, I knew Guy, and we were married in 1932. The Garretts were there, Mr. Garrett and Mrs. and Mrs. Kathleen. She was the daughter. And we went up every Christmas to Mass in the church. In, we were invited up every Christmas day to Mass in uh, Glencairn. Did uh, you see Boss Crooker when he was alive? Yes, I used to see him at Mass. They came, drove down to Mass here. In Sandyford? Yeah, in Sandyford. In Sandyford Church. Mr and Mrs Croker. Now, did you see his ghost? I did. Well, I was only about six years old at the time. And uh, my father was the gardener in it. And he had left an apple on one of the trees and it grew enormous to it. So he said to me... Uh, he was going down to close the greenhouse. It was late in the late September. So it was about 12 o'clock or half 11 when he went out and he brought me with him. So he left me outside while he was shutting down the greenhouse. And I just looked to my left 
I saw this man coming up the, the laneway. Just as you come up, like you turn right into the garden. But I kept, I kept following with my eyes, you know. And it was only when he went to the garden door, I let an awful scream, like my father said to me, what had happened. I said to him, I saw a man, no, he said, you didn't. But I knew I had seen him. So he asked me, what was he like? So I could tell him. But then it was years after, like, when I said, like, was all forgotten about. Years after, when I saw a photograph, like, I said, that was the man. Look, I described the man to him, but he knew himself, like, that I had seen him. Today, Glen Kern is the official residence of the British ambassador. It became briefly notorious some months ago when the then ambassador was assassinated outside its gates. From the outside, the house remains quite unchanged. Boss Croker and Bueller wouldn't have the least difficulty in recognising their old home. But inside, the furnishing and decor are more restrained than it was in their day, and from the modern point of view, more tasteful than the boss had it. To the boss, the present Glen Cairn would be a bit on the Spartan side, a bit colourless, and the gardens rather poorly kept by his standards, not even one orchid in sight. His artificial lake has long since been filled in, his mausoleum on its bank has vanished, and it's not his beloved Beulah by whose side he rests, awaiting Gabriel's trumpet on the last day, but Stella Bowman's. Such is life. Correction, boy! Such is death. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T R Y L I F E M D.com.